you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we're turning to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Join with me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have just sung together about our desire to stand on every promise of your word. So Father, as we sang, let it be true that we will listen for your voice as you speak to us clearly through your word, as your spirit unstops our deaf ears, opens our closed eyes to see and to hear and to believe your promises. Father, we thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. May we, through your word and by your spirit, see our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Here we are at week 14 in the series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. With the gospel, according to Mark, our big question was, who is Jesus? With this letter to the Galatians, our big question is, what is the gospel? Jesus, of course, announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel because the king was at hand. And Jesus is still speaking through his word and by his spirit. The gospel both establishes us and continues to mature us. It's not just the ABCs, the entrance to the Christian life, it's the A to Z. The gospel, as I've been saying, is a lifetime message. It's both the on-ramp to the freeway and the freeway itself of the Christian life. It's the one message that both unbeliever needs to hear and the believer continues to, as it were, keep on hearing and keep on believing. Indeed, you may not even notice it's been there every Sunday. Without fail, it's on page 11. It's this little expression, information and transformation. It says this on the announcement page, the gospel is not only a message from God announcing good news, Ephesians 1.13, it is also the power of God to change us, Romans 1.16. As we continue to believe the gospel, we are continued to be, to be changed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost proclaims the gospel. Here, Paul in Galatians proclaims the gospel to who? Professing believers to the church. Over the past two weeks, there have been two movements. First, the move of the Galatians from slavery to sonship, the first seven verses of chapter 4. And then last week, in view of the Galatians seeming turn from sonship back to slavery, we saw Paul move from astonishment in, verse, in chapter 1 to here in chapter 4, perplexity. Why would they want to turn back? We saw last week and reminded ourselves that the gospel is always under threat. There will always be the temptation to turn back. A friend once told me, you only persevere when you want to quit. Have you ever thought about that? 
endurance and perseverance only begins at the point when you want to quit or you want to turn back. The gospel ministry is a personal ministry, we also learn. Paul was up close, he was transparent, he shared his life. Last week we saw Paul appeal to the experience of the Galatians themselves, reminding them of of his relationship with them, of how he came to preach the gospel and how they responded. But today in our passage we will see Paul move on from their experience to the testimony of the law itself. Anybody notice the title of the sermon? Children of Promise. When you hear that expression, what immediately comes to mind? Is it something along the lines of children of potential? You know, you have unlimited possibilities. I remember in the Navy, we had to give periodic evaluations of our performance. And you never wanted to hear the expression, so in, you have unlimited potential. That generally is a translation of you're not doing so very well right now. You have potential, children of potential, unlimited possibilities, children who show signs of what they can be, children who, as it were, already look good. Guess what? They look promising. Let's keep that in mind as we move now into our text. Now, our passage for many people is a difficult passage in the Bible, in the New Testament. Why? Because it presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament. But let's don't forget what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4. Paul writes this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that a great thing to keep in mind when you run across, especially Old Testament passages, but even New Testament passages? Why is this here? Why was it written? Well, you could, you could say it was written for our instruction so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might all have hope. Join with me as I read these verses beginning in chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. 
But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's look at verse 21. A question is asked. To whom? To whom? To those who are under the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean just obeying the law because Paul elsewhere, of course, is going to talk about the good purposes of the law as well. But what it does mean is rather relying on the law for your standing with God. Because a Christian is going to increasingly want to do what pleases the Lord and he finds a guide through the law. But relying on the law, trusting in your obedience is not the way to either get or maintain a relationship with the Lord. So who is this? You who desire to be under the law. That's a great question, not just for the mid-first century. It's a great question for today in January 2018. Remember, who is this letter being written to? Professing Christians. It reminds me, interestingly, of the time in Luke 18 where Jesus tells a parable and Luke, the narrator, provide some really good information on how to interpret the parable. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a, tax, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. But do you ever notice what Luke, the narrator, uh, says before that? Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Paul is writing this letter to all of those who desire to be under the law because, my friends, we are all in, in, in many ways, maybe to one degree or another, recovering Pharisees, increasingly forgetting, or excuse me, in constant danger of forgetting to live by faith and instead choosing to go right back to living as it were, under the law. We forget that, liber- that Christianity is, is liberty, not slavery. We somehow reduce our faith to a list of rules or traditions, and we evaluate our standing with God based on what we do for God as opposed to what He has done for us in Christ. My friends, that is a great temptation. Because if I, at the end of the day, can pull out my checklist and look at everything I've done, Oh, everything I've done. Or do I, at the end of the day, look back and say, Oh, Lord, look what you have done for me. What you have done through me. To him be glory forever. Amen. Look at Paul's argument. He, he's going to persuade. He wants to persuade, and so he uses a legal argument. He, he asks, in other words, Do you have any idea what the law, this probable meaning here of the the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, do you have any idea what the law really says? And in doing so, he exposes the inconsistency and the illogic of their position. It is a brilliant argument. He turns the tables on them. He's going to show that their father Abraham 
had two sons, and in doing so, he will show that there are two ways of being related to Abraham. One right way and one wrong way. Now, Paul does not wait for an answer from the Galatians. Instead, he provides the answer to his own question. He does so in three stages. First, by looking at the historical situation. Second, by making an allegorical interpretation. And then third, by presenting a practical application. Let's look at verses 22 through 23. Uh, An historical situation is remembered. Paul brings Abraham into play once again and for the last time in Galatians. Um, Believe it or not, Paul has mentioned Abraham eight times in Galatians. He says it about the same amount in Romans as well. Because Abraham was one of the Jews in general and the Judaizers, the false teachers in particular, loudest and proudest boast. We are are children of Abraham. Remember Jesus' confrontations with some of the religious leaders when they rested in the fact that they claimed to be Abraham's children. Paul reminds his readers that Abraham had two sons. I remember the, the, the camp song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Well, Paul is taking the many And just saying two. Two sons. Ishmael, son of a slave. And Isaiah. Excuse me, Isaac. Son of a free woman. Two sons. Both had Abraham as their father. But there are two important differences. The two mothers. One is Hagar. One is Sarah. The manner or circumstance of their birth. Ishmael's birth is ordinary. It's according to nature. If you recall the story, it's a result of human connivance. It's an act of disbelief in God's promises and attempt to take matters into their own hands. The bottom line with Ishmael's birth, human effort and attainment. But on the other hand is an extraordinary birth. It's against nature. It is supernatural. It's the fulfillment of a promise of God. Abraham and Sarah, and I believe Rob in your introduction to every promise mentioned, Abraham's 100, Sarah is 90. It's not going to happen. They are not capable in and of themselves. Whereas the bottom line for Ishmael's birth was human effort and attainment. The bottom line for Isaac's birth, God's mercy, God's mercy. Now, by introducing this story, Paul brings to the surface different strategies toward justification. That is, being declared right with God that are operating in Galatia. There's more than sibling rivalry going on. Abraham and Hagar, it's it's. That verse that many claim is in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. My friends, in America, that's that's considered gospel truth. God helps those who help themselves. But Abraham and Sarah, it's a recognition 
that Isaac is a gift. We didn't help ourselves. We couldn't. God did it for us. Everyone, Paul is trying to help us see, everyone is a slave by nature until fulfillment of God's promise is set free. Everyone is either an Ishmael or an Isaac, either still what we are by nature, slaves, objects of wrath, or what we are by grace, free and alive. Well, Paul now takes the historical situation and gives it an allegorical interpretation. Look with me at verses 24 through 27. A word about allegories. Um, An allegory is a story, of course, in which each element represents something beyond itself. Pilgrim's progress is a great example of an allegory, that great allegory written by John Bunyan, where everything in the story points to something, in particular a spiritual truth. To interpret an allegorical text is to follow the intentions of the author. Now, although these are historical events, absolutely, The circumstances of the births of the sons stand for deeply spiritual truths. Did you notice as I read the passage, there are a lot of twos. A lot of twos. Mothers, sons, covenants, mountains, cities, conditions. Did you know that um, it's sometimes said that the world is divided between those who divide the world in twos? And those who do not. Look what Paul is doing via allegory. Look at his argument. Paul uh, finds this story to be a good symbolic illustration of grace and works. Why? Because Abraham had two choices. He could wait to receive what God was capable of doing. Or he could go out and attain what he was capable of doing. My friends, this represents, the choice facing Abraham represents two entirely different approaches to religion as we see in Galatians. It's law versus grace. It's the flesh versus the spirit. It's self-reliance versus divine dependence. It's a religion of bondage Versus a religion of freedom as Paul will go on to speak about in chapter 5. Now a word about the Jerusalem above. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city that's bound to God by the new covenant. The citizenship there is, is not bondage but freedom. It's not chronological but spatial. It's the church. It's the church. Did you see the Old Testament quotation? Isaiah 54.1 Paul here takes the same story that Isaiah used and he gives it an even more full and wonderful interpretation. It's addressed, recall from Isaiah, to to exiles in Babylonian captivity, people who are failures, who are weak, who are helpless. Yet, Isaiah tells them that they will be more numerous after their return to the promised land than before. There's a partial physical fulfillment here, but there's a true spiritual fulfillment Isaiah is writing about the growth of the church. It looks back to Genesis. Two women, one old and barren, and the other young and fertile. And what does God do? 
He chooses to work through the old and barren. That's how grace works. If you were a Batten person, you would choose young and fertile, not old and barren, right? That's not how God works. Do we here at Grace and Peace understand how grace works? Grace flows downhill. It doesn't flow uphill to those who attain. It flows downhill to those who acknowledge their weakness and helplessness and utter dependence upon the Lord. Will others around us know how grace works? By how we live our life. The Galatian church is being beaten up by false teachers. Paul turns the tables and comforts the Galatians. They are the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only those who are morally strong, able, come from good families, have strong records. But if salvation is by grace through faith, in other words, if the gospel is true, it doesn't matter who you are or who you were. The gospel of grace is especially for the barren. Because the strong, the young, the fertile, they don't think they have a need. However, those who are weak know that they are weak and know that they need God. The more that I've thought about church growth and church expansion and what it means to be a healthy, thriving church, I keep circling back to this fact that God wants us to be a weak church. A weak church in and of ourselves so that we can instead be strong in the Lord. How's that for a marketing slogan? The weak church. My friends, when you pull back the curtain, of course, you see weak people desperately dependent upon the Lord. May we always know that we are a weak church and desperately need the Lord's hand in our ministry. Now, Paul applies the allegory to the Galatians and ultimately to us because a practical application is made in verses 28 through 31. Paul's like, here's who you are again. Again, Paul is telling the Galatians who they are in Christ. Verse 28, they are children of promise. In verse 31, they are children of the free woman. And because of who you are, here's what you should expect. And Paul says you should expect two things. First, persecution. What? For the children of promise, we should expect persecution? Yes, because if we are like Isaac, verse 28, then we must expect persecution. We must expect to be treated as Isaac was treated. What did Isaac get from his half-brother? We must also expect from his descendants persecution. Remember, Hagar and Ishmael laughed in mockery over Sarah and Isaac. John Stott, in his commentary on this particular verse, writes this. We must expect the same. The persecution of the true church of Christian believers who trace their spiritual descent from Abraham 
is not always by the world who are strangers unrelated to us, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It has always been so. The Lord Jesus Christ was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, and condemned by his own nation. The fiercest opponents of the Apostle Paul who dogged his footsteps and stirred up strife against him were the official church, the Jews. The greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers who, when they hear the gospel, often embrace it. But the church, the establishment, the hierarchy, Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Persecution. The gospel is always threatening. More threatening to religious people than irreligious people. Religious people often have an insecurity that makes them hostile to the gospel, which of course insists that our best deeds are useless before God. If we are justified by faith, and Paul is arguing and defending justification by faith, if we are justified by faith, then we tend not to hate the people who differ from us. We actually go after them and share the good news with them. But if we are somehow justified by works, then, interestingly, we often tend to persecute others who don't do it like we do it. We should not only expect persecution, but we should also expect something else, an inheritance. If we are like Isaac, then we will receive the inheritance. We must expect to be treated as Isaac was treated. What Isaac got from his half-brother, we're going to get. What Isaac got from his father, Abraham. And what we must expect and will indeed get from God is an inheritance. Think with me for a moment about persecution and inheritance. There's a relationship. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, writes this. One reason Christians are willing to be disliked or even persecuted for their faith is that they know what God has in store for them. You can endure, you can persevere because you know what's waiting you. Ishmael never received the inheritance even though Abraham asked God to give it to him. God blessed Ishmael in many ways, but he never gave him the promise of salvation. These verses are a shocking reversal. Um, Paul is bold. Although the Judaizers were Jews, they were really Ishmaelites, spiritually speaking. The, the Judaizers prided themselves as being the true sons of Abraham. But they were spiritually illegitimate because of giving up the gospel to go back to the law. Indeed, anyone who tries to be justified by keeping the law, Paul will say over and over again, is in spiritual bondage. The true heirs of God's promise to Abraham are his children, not by physical descent, but by spiritual descent. Here's the paradox of the Christian's experience. The pain of persecution and the privilege of inheritance. Well, Paul has said a bit about who we are and what we should expect. Now here's what you must do. Paul quotes Sarah. Here's what you must do, church. 
cast out. The Galatians needed to drive the Judaizers and their legalism right out of the church. Here Paul is using a rhetorical flourish in order to advise people to get rid of those teachers who deny the gospel of grace. J.I. Packer says something very simply when he says this, legalistic religion in all its forms should be avoided like the plague. In all its forms. A theology of grace and a theology of works. The essence of the contrast Paul is making here in the whole of Galatians. Cannot live in harmony together with one another. I'm thinking of Stevie Wonder, Ebony and Ivory, right? Live together in perfect harmony, side by side on the keyboard. Why can't we? My friends, a theology of grace and a theology of works cannot live together in harmony. Like Abraham's two wives, the tension is unbearable. Somebody has to go. And Paul is telling the church to tell the false teachers to get out and stay out. Let's wrap up. Hear this story of Abraham. Two women, two sons, two approaches. Living by faith or trusting in your own effort. For Abraham to get a son through Hagar, took no faith at all. He had the human capacity. To get a son through Sarah took enormous faith in God. What about you right now? Who are you trusting? I appreciated Ligon Duncan's comment that I think I included in this week's preparing for worship. He said, without Ignoring all the imperatives of the New Testament, the big imperative is to trust God, to trust Him, to trust Him. I've been in so many situations the past year where I've come to the fork in the road where it's trust God and His promises or trust what you can do right now. And sadly, there have been times when I've chosen to trust what you can do right now. And God has mercifully, kindly redirected me to trust Him. Who are you trusting right now with whatever? Paul uses this story because it proclaims the gospel, guess what, from the Old Testament. Because the gospel is not attaining but receiving, not doing but believing, not natural but supernatural. Trusting the promise, trusting every promise God has made. One commentator says, religion and philosophy in general says that God and salvation are only for those who are good. The gospel is always exclusive. It says that God and salvation are only for those who know that they are not good and can only be saved by grace. But the gospel has a far more inclusive exclusivity. Anyone can belong to God through the gospel at once, regardless of record and background, regardless of who you have been or what you have done or how weak you are. Religion is for the noble, the able, the moral, the strong. But the gospel, as Paul and indeed as Jesus would proclaim, is for everyone. And finally, 
a word about God's mercy. Do you see God's mercy to Abraham? Abraham didn't get it right. Abraham blew it. My friends, what an encouragement to us. We are children of promise. We are not children of potential. By grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, you are children of promise. You're like Isaac, who was not born according to nature, but against nature. By grace, because Christians are people, as John's gospel clearly proclaims, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a visible word of God's mercy to us. As Paul will write, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Rich in the grace and mercy of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these words which were indeed written and recorded in times past for our instruction and for our encouragement. Father, we thank you that these are not only words of instruction and encouragement, but they are the word of the God of encouragement and the God of endurance. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to be with your children the children of promise, and give us a clarity of what lies ahead for us, those who are in Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that indeed we are standing and called to stand by every promise that you have made. And we rejoice that every promise that you have made is yes and amen in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.